and welcome to our Saturday morning Dungeons and Dragons show. I'm your host this morning, Sir Lucian from Sir Lucian Gaming, and Jordan, who is normally my co-host. Jordan, that's PH is silent from uh, YouTube and Twitch. He is currently on vacation, so I had to bring in a very special guest, which you can see on the screen. I brought in Jim Murphy, who's going to sit with us and talk all about gaming and RPGs, and I think we're going to have a really fun discussion. Uh, Jordan will be back next week, and we'll have another good show. And don't just keep signing in. We're going to always bring in more guests. Uh, you guys got to see the Matt Colville interview. You got to see Lex Mandrake's uh, interview and Ben from Questing Beast. We've already bringing in really good people to talk about GMing topics and stuff, and I think we're going to have a really good session this morning. So if you got questions, you can put them in over in the chat area. I'll try to keep an eye on it as I can. But I think we're just going to jump right into it. So, Jim Murphy, I would love and want to say thank you for joining our show this morning. But if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit and just where we can find you um, and a little bit about uh, what you do right now. Hey, good morning. Um, I guess good afternoon to some of your guests. Uh, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, I got into this a few months ago doing the uh, social media type event. Previous to that, I've been gaming for... Uh, 40 some plus years um right now you can find me on uh, both uh, youtube uh, i also have a, a twitter feed uh, all of it is jim murphy at game methuselah um i also you can get me on reddit if you need to uh, i'm working on a bunch of different projects but mostly like i said i've been just getting involved uh, following the lead of uh, what everybody else is doing and talking about my over 40 years of experience in gaming trying to get people into painting building miniature collections and uh and getting out there and, and role-playing and then DMing games because it's so much easier. Um, if I did a recent uh, video on the minimalist uh, DM, which is me, I mean, I've, mm -hmm. uh, I've basically been able to whip games up very quickly and uh, provide lots of content lots of times because I was the only game in town. But uh, I, I enjoy it, and I'm glad to be here to talk about gaming. So, uh, awesome. Got any questions or anything well, I, about it? Yeah, I knew all. I knew one of the things that I, I one of my first questions I was thinking was, tell us where the game Methuselah part comes from. How'd you get your Twitter handle? How'd you decide to come up with that? What's the story behind that? Because there's got to be a story. <laughs> um, well, Game Methuselah came because uh, twenty some years ago I opened uh, three retail hobby shops. And I was 39 years old, so, you know, it was no big deal. I was a young guy, had lots of energy, had a real job. And I wasn't looking to make money. I was making lots of money in the industry. But I just wanted to open it up with game stores and in-store gaming, which really didn't exist a whole lot at the time. And as we did this, everyone kept calling me the old man. It was just like I was way older than everybody, and I found that kind of sad. <laughs> but eventually, Methuselah, which is the, the old man who lives forever, um, which is what I'm trying to do, and <laughs> continues on, uh, became my moniker. So a lot of times you'll find it on uh, games. You go on to various games like WoW and things like that. My moniker has always been Methuselah. And thusly, as I started talking about the games, I just came with the Game Methuselah moniker. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's really good. So there's a really good interview out there uh, with you and Matt Colville, um, yep. you being friends with Matt Colville. And I definitely recommend people go and watch that too, because that's really where I kind of got my first introduction to Jim and, and really want thinking, Oh, I really would love to talk with this guy and, and really kind of dive into some of the things 
um, that were interesting. We won't probably cover a lot of those same questions because obviously you can go watch that interview, but there will probably be a little overlap. So I think both are good. Go check out Matt's uh, interview on it. And I know Matt has been saying, even in our when we had him on the show um, on our Saturday morning show, he was talking about he was definitely going to have Jim more on his channel as he's getting his studio thing set up. Jim was going to be a prominent member. So I know we're going to get a lot more of Jim. So it's going to be great. Um, but yeah, I know, I know one of the things they talked about is that, uh, that I wanted to go into the, the story of a little bit was, so you, the very first time you play an RPG, but before we say that piece, I, I really want to know what was going on right before that. Like what was the big gaming that Jim was doing? What, how did you interact with it? I think it was something like you were working at a game store at the time as a young man. Was that true? Right. Yeah. yeah. I was, I came out of the hobby, um, in modeling. I was an IPMS member, made historical models, painted historical miniatures, and there were monthly meetings and tournaments and events, and that's what I would do. I would bring my stuff down, everyone would go ooh and on, I get, get a trophy. That was what was very common in the 70s. Um, but I had game. Uh, there was Avalon Hill bookshelf games at the time, and this was back from the 60s forward. And there was like American Heritage, and there were some other game companies, and they made different board games. And I had played lots of Monopoly and, you know, all the things that everyone plays growing up. And I love games, always did. So I really got into the games like Panzer Blitz and Rick Tobin's War and these games made by Avalon Hill. And then I found SPI games and they made some science fiction games. It was really fun. And a hobby shop opened up in, in Lakewood, California, near where I lived. It was called the Military Shop. And I walked in and it was like a dream paradise. They had models, they had games, they had everything I was into. And it's like, hey, you need an employee? And they did. And I went to work for them. Well, none of those people knew anything about games. They all were modelers. They were uh, military collectors. They were historians. So they said, does anyone know anything about this gaming? And I said, well, yeah, I do. And they said, you're now the game store manager. <laughs> so at the age of not quite 18, I became the manager of the game store. And thusly, I did everything. And I just delved into gaming. And the more I got into gaming, the more I realized, hey, I don't just need to make models and use them in thing and then put them on a shelf i can paint miniatures and make models and then use them in these games and that's what i did and i had the greatest time um it was a great time and then what i would do is i had it as a sort of clearing house for gaming mm -hmm. people would come in and they said oh i want to play this and i'd write their name down i had all these clipboards so if you came in and you wanted to play dungeons and dragons i said well i know three groups that are playing give me your name and number and i'll get it to them and then I'll put these groups together. So I was putting all these groups together in gaming. And I joined in a couple of them and uh, just kept playing. And, and I loved it. And modeling kind of went away because no point in painting miniatures to never use them. I get to paint miniatures and put them on the board and play with them. And so like all kids, you get to play with your toy soldiers no matter how old you get. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Because like game, like if you talk, you? yeah, yeah. If you talk about game stores these days, it really is a store that could be based around gaming and maybe even a comic book store might be the same piece or that. But it feels like back in those days, in the 70s, like I'm a, I'm a young kid too. Um, <clears throat> it was a model shop. It was a hobby shop then, right? Did they have the, the trains, the models? That was the shop and they had the games. Right? So it was kind of that type of a... This shop was not. And okay. it was just starting out. There's two shops here in Southern California, one called the Warhouse in Long Beach. And then the military shop, sadly gone, which was in Lakewood. Both of those shops were changing the perspective. They were going away from um, railroad, you know, and all that. There was no railroading. There was no 
you know, rockets. Well, I guess that came later. But there was really not the hobby end, no slot cars, none of that. What right. you had was just gaming and historical miniatures so, and historical models. So Hasegawa, Tamaya, all of them were really big at the time. So lots of people were into the historical end. And then they would go and get involved with like the IPMS, International Plastic Modelers. That's how you got into the hobby. You know, there really wasn't, it wasn't until Dungeons and Dragons came out, which really originally started with a little supplement in the back of their chain mail. And there was a group, a set of miniatures by a company called the Kirschbieler. And they made this whole Lord of the Rings set of miniatures that were, that we had. And I just sort of put the two together. Well, wait a minute, you got the miniature game, with the fantasy, and you got the fantasy miniatures. So I started to put them together and it grew so very fast. You know, I mean, we had a con up in San Jose where a lot of people from uh, the D&D folks, you know, uh, Gary Gygax uh, came out and a bunch of people in a brand new company called Ralph Partha that was trying to get their miniatures on the market came out. And my boss set me up you know, to, to the con, which was great. So I went up to, to join in and play with Dave Arneson and everybody. And he gave me the company credit card and said, if you see anything we should have in the shop, you know, go ahead and get it. He thought maybe I'd buy a couple hundred dollars. So I came back with about three or four thousand dollars worth of merchandise. <laughs> which he was sort of like, oh, my God, what did you do? You spent all this money. And I put it up in the shelves and I set it all up. And on Friday, we I put it up. And by Sunday, 90 percent of it was gone. Oh, nice. And my boss thought I was brilliant at that point. So then I could do whatever I wanted. And thusly, we became a big mecca um, for what was the local hobby Dungeons and Dragons scene at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts out with how much experience did you have in chainmail at the time then? So because that's really the, the precursor to the D&D, like you said, pamphlet. Um, very little. I owned it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I bought the pamphlet. I owned it. It was medieval. So... I was slowly building an army, um, which was, you know, because it's an army game, and that was the whole idea. Because understand, Dungeons & Dragons was never expected to be their big moneymaker. Mm-hmm. This was just a supplement that they put out that then people said, wait, we want more of this. And then they had to figure out what the heck to do. I mean, Dave Arneson, who I had lunch with many decades ago, you know, I asked him about the D&D game system. I said, you know, it's a strange system for man-to-man combat. He goes, well, it's civil war ironclads and i'm like what he goes yeah we didn't have a game system ready for man-to-man combat so i adjusted our civil war ironclads game system that we were going to produce and turned it into a man-to-man combat system and that's why armor makes you harder to hit in dungeons and dragons because you know most civil war ironclads (laughs) just moved up next to each other and just fired right it was not so much whether you could hit them because you're going to hit them it was if you could hit them sufficiently to do damage to them and thusly they've been stuck with this system ever (laughs) since and uh that's great and so let's talk about um i know your very first experience running now did you play in a game for dungeons and dragons or did you run one first no i played played. i had no idea i generated characters and my girlfriend and i um and two other friends of ours went uh, another couple went to the first game with dave arneson and i think there were 20 maybe 25 people there in three different games and I, you've heard the story when they, yep, if they yep. watch Matt Covills, you'll hear the story about my yeah. girlfriend who ends up with the highest level magic user in <laughs> Southern California. But um, yeah, we played and everybody fell in love with it. And so we played the following week. And at that point it was great. But now people are like, well, you know, I don't want to wait till next Friday. Mm-hmm. Gee, I wish we could play a game now. And so, you know, the girlfriend asked you, can, can you run a game? And I'm like, 
yeah, you bet I can. <laughs> and I sat down and just looked at the charts and figured it out. And I've got sort of the bardic spirit. So I just produced a game and we were off and running. Do you and, remember you know, the storyline of that one? thing was fabulous. But, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> do you remember what your was, story you came up with for that? Like, do you remember even what you were thinking at that time? I generated a dungeon because that's all you had at the time. It was basically mm-hmm. kind of like what people call murder hobos now. I mean, it was basically, <laughs> you know, there was a dungeon. My dungeon was called Maelstrom. It had this whirlpool of evil down below. And that was the whole thing. Now, I had never drawn any of this. I had only drawn one level of the dungeon. And then they had a random generator. And I generated the monsters and put it in there. And everyone just sort of kicked in the door and killed the monsters and collected the treasure. The stories evolved as it came. And mm-hmm. because it was kind of an open system, um, the world, you went from one place to another. So we were going out to Caltech to play with those people. Um, and we were playing at, you know, Lee Gold's house in Long Beach. So you start playing with various different people at the time. And you start grabbing very much like it, I'm sure it is today. It's just we only had a very limited group of people. You know, mm-hmm. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. The, you know the, the tons and tons of people playing nowadays but uh, it's a much better situation now there's a lot more opportunities um, you can even play online with players if you you know don't have a group uh, you can obviously go online I think like you were talking about you do is, is yeah. have groups that you play with uh, on roll d20 or fantasy grounds or any of those they're all good systems that you can sit at home and play with people in foreign countries you know it's uh, it's fun so and it, the, the interview you did with Matt really has a great story about that three game going to that house and playing. I recommend you guys go and listen to that story because it was a really fun story. You put a lot of details into that. When's the first time you switch from D&D and, and start playing maybe something else RPG-wise? Um, I would say D&D ran solid for about two years. So you're looking more than likely into 1977 mm-hmm. until there were really other things out there. And uh, at that point I found a game called Shivering Sorcery, which I really liked. Um, I played that, it had less appeal. And then they started to, to come in on mass. There was a, Steve Jackson put out a little folio game called Wizards and then uh, called Melee and then later in a supplement called Wizards, which I sort of modified and adopted and made it a role-playing system, even though it wasn't. And then later he came out with a role-playing system and there was all kinds of things that they just kept coming in. And I'm sort of this, if something new comes in, I want to play it and I want to read it. And then I would say, hey, this is great. I mean, I loved RuneQuest. Everyone else hated it. You know, there's a lot of games. I, I loved uh, Empire of the Petal Throne, the Tecamil thing that Barker came up with. That was based on D&D. Really loved it. Played it. Found some people who played. Uh, would go anywhere I could to play it. But, uh, you know, there's just lots. And I sort of got away from D&D, not intentionally, it's just because I was sort of leading the way with different game systems that I felt were more detailed, more combat-oriented, more miniature-friendly um, than Dungeons & Dragons was. Because a lot of people were doing theater of the mind. But it never went away. I mean, I always played. I just played less of it. And you were a big... You you liked... I think I remember you talking a little bit. You liked 4th Edition quite a bit, right? So we go through... I like, loved 4th Edition. Yeah, yeah. I, I was so sad that I think... Matt Coville and I, and maybe a handful of other people are only the people who actually love fourth edition. I, I still think it was the best um, that they've done. I think fifth edition is much more of a throwback to third. Um, they're trying to simplify it. It even almost seems much more like D and D zero in a lot of ways where it's being simplified and it's good. I'm running it currently right now. Um, so I'm, I'm piecing through the rules and it's, it's all reasonably good. 
and it's much better than it was. And mm -hmm. I would recommend, you know, if you're playing new, you should always start with Dungeons and Dragons, just for the, the greatest reason, because some people ask me, you know, what my favorite game system is. And I always say, well, the one everybody's playing, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's no point to have really great systems. And there's some out there that nobody plays. Yeah. You know, and you, you know, I can, I can, you know, there's a game called Dragon Quest. Which my friend Don loves beyond anything, but you know, you got to buy the <laughs> rules on, you know, eBay, and then you got to find people who are willing to read it because it's gone. It's been dead a long time, and not likely to get resurrected. So yeah. It's owned by Hasbro, and I don't think they let go of anything. So it was interesting too. I know you do a lot of conventions. You go and do a lot of convention play. You're even talking about like you've hosted stuff. You've been part of groups that are hosting events and things. And right, yeah. How do, how um, do you feel? HNGS PSW is is a big group I'm involved now, which is historical miniature gaming. Mm -hmm. And in October we're having another game convention, and it's all based on historicals. I might, if if you know things change, I actually might do um, some historical. D and D. I might run a D and D zero event there because I have a lot of miniatures and I obviously have a lot of history with Dungeons and Dragons in the original format. But um, but I'm trying to avoid that if I can, only because we're trying to do historicals and and uh, historicals and role playing have always been at odds with each other. <laughs> well, I know one of the things that we love to do on the show is really talk about stuff that can help new GMs. And um, yeah. you're definitely a longtime GM. And you've even done some videos where you're starting to talk about differences between GM style, how to get into yeah. GMing, to really help out other people. Just like I think Matt Colville has done a great job inspiring new yeah, GMs. He's done a fabulous job. Inspired me as a new GM. And um, the newest video you have is The Minimalist GM, which I really liked. And I like the idea that you talked about um, what the differences were between those couple of styles. And like, tell us a little bit about your style currently as you run a game, I think is just a way to give us a, a good footing. What is it like to be in a Jim Murphy game right now if we're playing some Dungeons or Dragons or whatever system it happens to be? Well, I've got a reputation of being a pretty deadly dungeon master. Um, I, you know, I've, I've uh, trashed a lot of parties and I think it's an unfair reputation. I, uh, <laughs> I, I tend to make a very challenging game. Um, because to me, if there is no drama, um, if there is no uh, great risk and feeling of uh, that you could be decimated at any moment. And this last Thursday, I ran a game that came very close to wiping the party out. And uh, fortuitously, they, they kind of rallied. Their spirit sort of broke and they were kind of running for it. And then they kind of rallied because they realized they weren't going to get away. And, uh, and they were able to save the day. And, that, and it, was, it was exciting. I think they had a good time. Um, but I think the thing for me is, again, like, I think when Matt did his last prepping video on prepping for his new campaign, he asked people, how much of the preparation do you do is for you and how much is for the gamer? And he said 80-20, which I thought was perfect, because that's true. Most people over-prepare their games. I tell new DMs, the secret is make a little adventure. Come up with a, a hook, you know, please go save my pig, or, you know, some, some children have been kidnapped, or it could be anything, whatever you want. But just have the first adventure ready. And then maybe in that first adventure, the leader of the goblins, which was what happened to me, um, the goblins are getting beat and the leader runs away. And I had named him Bogan Redcap. And this character then dogged the heroes for decades. I mean, I'm not lying. He's been in every <laughs> game system I've run ever since. He's sort of this ongoing protagonist who shows up and, and tries to foil whatever the adventurers are doing. And this all came because of a throwaway adventure I ran with a throwaway hero leader, a monster leader, that 
didn't die and thusly you can build your leaders and i've told this to new people just let the game take its own course you know do something simple use what you have uh, if you have a module and use it you know maybe add a little to it and then let the players lead you where the game goes now don't tell them this i mean god forbid i don't want to out myself to the to all the players that <laughs> i usually do mostly i would say 50 percent to 60 percent impromptu gaming um in the video in fact we had lunch with matt the other day and he even mentioned the dwarves who went off their adventure and went into the gnomish bank and i had to do this whole adventure out of my head instantaneously while i'm racing through the stuff to, to figure it out and matt goes god it was a fabulous game he said could you imagine if we had that on video because he i think that really was a changing moment for all of us because i don't think up to that point everyone in our group at least didn't realize you could just wing it i mean you could just come out mm -hmm. run a you know a sandbox game and who knows where you're going to go? And I tell people in the video, you got to prep for that, though. It's not something you just do. So I prep up all kinds of creatures. I have a little three-by-five card box I usually have with me. So if somebody says, I want to go over here, it's like, yeah, no problem. You just do it, and you pull something out, and you figure it out, and you know what the CR, if you're playing Dungeons & Dragons, they make it easy for you. Because once you know what the CR of the group is, the challenge rating, you just know what you pick. So you can open up a book and say, you know, this is a CR1 creature. He had so many of them to get to the point mix, and you can just run it out there. And if you prep it in advance and so just have these random encounters, you can put together a whole adventure completely out of your head. And I think it works faster. I think in many times it's much better. And your players don't need to know. I mean, Matt disagrees with me on this. He says, yeah, you absolutely never tell the players <laughs> that, you're, uh, that you're winging it because they're going to get, you know, they're going to feel like, well, you didn't care or you didn't put in the detail or whatnot. But you make a list no. of names. I mean, I did that because, you know, Matt used to get mad because he's like, well, what's the NPC's name? I don't know. I didn't make a name for him. You make it up. He didn't like that. So mm -hmm. before an adventure, I write down 50 names and have them ready. So if you, you run into somebody, it's like, oh, what's his name? And it's like, well, Sid's his name. And it's like, oh, okay, good. There are now. Yeah, and I think you can wing a lot. It's a lot easier than people think. Just yeah. use what you have. Go ahead. Yeah, I think there's a Go lot ahead. of um, videos out there that help people, brand new people that want to GM or DM, get into the thing, and they they hear about prepping and how much it is. But I think a lot of times they don't necessarily hear what prepping actually is. Like, what are you talking about when you when you say I spend 20 minutes of prepping? What am I actually prepping? Because like for me, when I prep when I'm playing an online game might be slightly different than what you prep for your game. That's more of a sandbox and something that you're coming up with. And it might be different for the person that's running a module. Cause I know like Matt likes to run modules, even though he tweaks them and he changes them, he likes right. different modules and he likes to run those. And I think the prep for those are slightly different though. There are very many similarities to it. And I'm not sure that that has gotten out. And I think that's why lots of people go out and look for videos when they talk about prep because they hear right. how much time they have to spend, but maybe not necessarily, exactly what we even mean like what is prep okay. for you what are you doing what does prep really mean to you what are you prepping um so i, I, will, I heard I'll monsters handle it a couple avenues yeah when there's modules involved i find the modules to be the longest prep time because you have to read the module at least once often more than that to kind of gather what's in there so you might have a situation where you'll spend hours reading through the module and then when you're playing half of that's gone out of your head so you're having to go through it I played a lot in the living games, um, you know, uh, 
Living Greyhawk in 3.5, Living Forgotten Realms in 4th edition, now Adventure League in 5th. And I've been a certified game master in all of those. And I find that when I play in them, and then when I am asked to run the same adventure later, most of the game masters never read the modules. They didn't know what they were doing. So they ended up just sort of throwing the monsters out there willy-nilly. Normally in my games, I know what the story is. And since I use maps and dungeon tiles, I'll often lay it out ahead of time and look at it. Um, so I'll look at my map and I'll understand what it looks like and what I want it to look like. Now, there might be some variance when I actually play because as I'm putting it down, I might grab the wrong tiles or not put them down in exactly the same order. But I have a rough idea. I usually generate two random to three random encounters, um, you know, wandering monsters. And those could be anything, you know, from one or two displacer beasts wandering around hunting for food. And you come up with a motivation. And that's in your brain. The motivation for, like, I had two displacer beasts in a recent encounter, which kind of was above the party level. But they weren't going to stay. If they couldn't get an easy kill, they're going to run. So they come in. They're dangerous. Everybody's terrified because they know two displacer beasts can trash the party. But they put up a good fight, and they bloody one of the displacer beasts, and they bail. Now, they get the victory, so they get the experience points if you're using the XP, or they get the success or whatever, however you're awarding. But it changes the game because that concept of, you know, you fight the monsters till they're dead, that never happens. I No one ever fights almost anything of mine until it's dead unless it's an undead. Most everything, when it starts to lose, runs. And that's the way it should be. But you can throw nastier stuff at players in the prep. So my prepping is I generate some random encounters, then I generate three main encounters, which are going to be in the adventure. So there's the preliminary, the guards, and then there's whatever they run into, maybe if they make a left turn, a cleanup crew or something. And then there's the big bad and his minions. Now, I know where they're at in the dungeon, but I don't have it spelled out. I know what the dungeon looks like because I've thought it out in my brain. And since it's my content, you know, I know like if I'm running my Albion, it's mostly all elven ruins and stuff. But if you keep it simple, like I said, my prep time, under an hour to, for a whole adventure. Um, and that makes it much easier for me to do other things. And then you come, and the minute you sit down and play, your players throw a monkey wrench in your preparation. <laughs> and you're suddenly making a left turn. Yeah. That's where you have to be free thinking about what they're doing. You know, So suddenly you pull a random encounter down, and that now becomes a main event. Because they've changed your game. Or they've come in the back door, so they go right to the main event. And Matt does this a lot, where he it's you know they call it the I think they call it the Coville screw. I used to say <laughs> you just walk into the main entrance of a of a back Coville dungeon, you kick the first guard, and don't do anything else. Don't worry, the whole dungeon will come to you. And, <laughs> you know, and, and I have a a Murphy orc trap, which I'm legendary for. But that's it. Keep it simple. Keep within what you're doing, and then build your campaign. You know, from what the players react to. Now, you know, I have much more grand ideas, but I've been doing a long time. But you can start much simpler and just get a game out there. Your players are going to love it because they're going to think there's much more. Just allude, always allude to something. The good thing to do is pick a, a story type. You know, if you like, uh, you are talking about Forgotten Realms. It's really, really in-depth. I mean, they've got, you know, meccas of, of detailed, you know, areas and everything else. All you have to take is one village in a remote area and you could be running games for years and mm -hmm. really never get out of that, you know, that locale to, you know, you'll never even scratch the surface of all that core information they've given you. Yeah. And what is, what is a typical, question? yeah. Yeah. What is a typical session length? Cause I think that's another thing that new GMs and DMs are struggling with to understand when they listen to other people's advice, it doesn't necessarily come out 
how long is the game you're planning for? Like Matt's game might be a three hour, four hour, it might be an eight hour marathon game. And that's a little bit different than if you're like, I do a lot of three hour style games. Cause I kind of run from like about eight 30 at night, try to get them done before midnight. So everybody can go back to work and all that. So my games are about a three hour session. So like my prep is kind of like a, I'm, I'm probably at two encounters instead of three because that's about right. what I can fit in. And I've started to learn what I can fit in in a certain amount of time. What's a typical, what are you, when you're prepping, what's the length you're thinking your game is going to go? Um, I try to prep for the three to four hour game as okay. well um, under normal night situations. So like Thursday night I had prepped a game, which I thought was three hours. It was five hours. <laughs> and fortunately these folks are, are game designers. So they're hardcore. <laughs> so they were all willing to stay to the, you know, and even though it was a school day and they all had to get up and go to work the next day. <laughs> but uh, um, it depends like on a Saturday game or a Sunday game, which I'll be running for the pad group. Um, we'll get together at nine o'clock and it's not uncommon for us to run games to six. Mm. So, but it may be multiple encounter. It might be multiple adventures. They might finish the first adventure in three or four hours. They come back to town. They have the reward interaction period. And they're like, are you ready for another bit? And I'm like, you know, and, and I'm always ready to go. So it's kind of like, yep, we're off. And then suddenly we run a, a second adventure. You got to gauge it. I'm getting better at gauging my night games because those, you know, obviously you have to keep controlled if there are work nights. Yeah. But we used to play Friday nights at Dave, you know, Miles office and we'd get there at six and we'd play till three. You know, I mean, <laughs> so it just depends on how crazy you want to be. Um, I think the three encounter two three encounter the three hour games came from a lot of the living games and they're smart the idea that you can get a game in in a reasonable period of time often what happens to me is there's more story so a lot of times the 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 pathos of what's going on takes more time you know mm -hmm. the druids wanted we're going to they, they rescued these children in the first adventure and the druid elders decided well wait a second these guys are tainted by some dark horrible thing and we might have to try them and if we find them you know that they're tainted we're going to have to burn them and the players didn't want any part of this so then yeah. it's like, well you have to go do this mission and get me this thing and prove that you know this device this magic relic will prove that they're tainted or not well you know and so the players are like well this is all bs but we know we got to do this or these kids are going to die so you know it's driving the mission you want a story that you know here's the dungeon you can go down and dungeon crawl if you want i got a nice big dungeon here with lots and lots of treasure or you can go save these kids what do you guys want to do mm -hmm. and it's like oh I want to save the kids. Of course they do. You know, that's the point. You give them a hook of something that you don't, you know, it's like, hey, don't worry. You don't have to do this. You can go here. We can go down and run the dungeon. And they're like, no, 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 no. You know, and so that's what you want to do. You give them little breadcrumbs um, that can lead them where you want to go. Now, I always have, like I said, always have a dungeon ready. Just, just a hack and slash, you know, because a lot of people just want to do that. They just, oh, no, we, got, no, we don't want to do that. We want to go, you know, kill some goblins and get some treasure. That's yeah. great. But we all love the that. other is where your story and thusly your campaign is going. Mm -hmm. You know, where, um, you know, Colorado the Vile, I think was Matt's thing. He stole out of a fourth edition module. And that dude haunted us for godly <laughs> amount of time, you know, because he just kept <laughs> using him over and over again until he became his guy instead mm -hmm. of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons guy. So, did that help? Yeah, yeah. And I know one of the things, I know a term you use quite often that might, with all the new people coming into the hobby, because right now, I think I've just saw an article that talked about D&D is at its highest it's ever been. 
It had like yes. a 40 or 50% growth even over last year. So even last year was big and enormous for the hobby and other games were doing great too. This year was even bigger yes. and better. So there's all this new influx of people coming in. We use terms sometimes that I don't know if a lot of our videos are explaining like living campaign because I don't know if a lot of people know what is the difference between what is a living campaign versus I go buy a module or I just play a game that I built that's homebrew um, that I use. Like homebrew, we're starting to get into the lexicon. So I think people are starting to understand that means you make your own content that you're going to play at your table, homebrew. And I know people understand what a module is. You go buy a module. It's already a pre-designed adventure or campaign that you can do things. But Living Campaign doesn't have a lot of videos out there based on it. So I know you know a lot about them. You've done a lot about uh, of them over the history. Give us a little rundown. Of what's the difference between what a Living Campaign is versus running the other styles of games? A, a Living Campaign is a lot how Dungeons & Dragons originally started. I mean, there was there was no framework. So if you generated a character and you played in, in and I played in your game and I you know went from first level to second level and then you suddenly moved to Idaho, um, you know I'm like what am I going to do? I've got this cool character I like. Well, I go over to somebody else's house and I said, hey, I got a second level character and they'll let you in their game, and thusly you play on. So I traveled all over Southern California with characters and generated them in everybody's game. Mm -hmm. um, that quickly ended. People kind of got into what they kind of kind of control thing. Well, I want my own world, and you can't take your character out of it. And that still permeates a lot of gaming now. Wizard of the Coast realized this is a problem, so they came up in third edition, I guess 3.5, with Living Greyhawk. Was the idea was you could go play in this game, and at the end of it, they'll give you experience <laughs> and stuff, and thus you can take that character to some other place, like a con, a game convention, always has living games going on. You know, they'll have Adventure Guild, Adventure League, which is the current 5th edition. And you can come and play in that game, and then you can go play at the next one at a local hobby shop, and they let you take this character from one point to another. It's always a game to play. It's a great way to get into the hobby if you don't have anybody who DMs, mm -hmm. um, find a place that's doing living games, and go jump in. I'm working on that currently with my Albion campaign. I was real successful with it. I love the background. I'm working on a source book that I'll likely kickstart or I'll run it through Matt's company, depending on how it, the logistics work for him. Um, but in the meantime, what I'm going to end up doing is setting up um, a living campaign online for that, where if you're part of, I guess it's going to end up doing it through Patreon, but if you're ended up at a Patreon DM or if you're working in my DM group and you get all my adventures that you're taking, using, or modifying, if I've got a guy here in California and you live in Texas and he moves to Texas, he comes in and says, hey, I've been playing in Jim's living game. I know you're running it. I want to be in your game. And it's like, yep, you're in. That's what living games are. And I wish we could get more of that. Um, I think a lot of times people get isolated um, where they're, they're in a situation where, you know, they're playing characters and then their game devolves and then they go, oh, well, it's over. Um, I've invested all this time and it's lost. And mm -hmm. that sometimes has been my disappointment. And I mentioned that on Matt's video. You know, I've got some great characters I've run over many decades that, you know, they're great stories, but I can't play them today because, you know, there's no, they're not in the living genre. Um, they're just in the house genre. Yeah. And I think we'll see more of that. I think as if I get my product out, I think you'll see, I know Wizards is doing it. I know that um, Pazio, I think they make their own system because they were running the third edition. Yeah. They have a living version as well. Mm -hmm. I super suggest it. Now, they might call it something else. Everybody always has like a nice hook. But mm -hmm. the thing that they're doing 
it's called uh, Adventure League, and you can find it in most shops, um, wherever you're at. And if yeah. not, just look online, type it in, and find out where they're playing it, and you're going to find some place, hopefully within driving distance, that you can get into a game. You know, right now. Yeah, yeah. I'll be one of your DMs on that Albion. That sounds good. I'll join your Patreon for that <laughs> when you great. get it out. That'd be great. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. I mean, because I, I also want to show people how to do it simply instead mm-hmm. of there's a difficult way. And the other thing about what I wanted to do is I don't want your game to be the same as my game. So if I give you a module, it'll be like, okay, here's my module or my unmodule, as I what I like to call it. This is how I ran it. But you, I would suggest you could look at these other seven or eight options or make up your entirely different option. But the basic storyline stays the same. And that's what you get in a living game. You get a continuous storyline. And more importantly, your characters can advance down this storyline. And uh, and I think it fell apart, like I said, late in D&D, because what happened is you'd have players who come and play in your game, and they'd get to be fourth or fifth level, and they had a great time. Then they'd disappear for the summer. And then they'd come back at the end of summer, and they say, hey, I got a 15th level character now. And you'd be like, yeah, what? It's like, well, yeah, I played like three times a day every day for, you know, the mm-hmm. last six months. You're like going, oh, okay, you know, I'm, whatever, <laughs> you know, and that's why I think that death knell the living game started is people didn't like that fact they couldn't control who was coming in and going out, you know, and people would show up and it's like, oh, I have a Vorpal sword. And it's like, well, nobody in our group has anything more than a plus one sword. How did you get a Vorpal sword? Well, this guy gave it to me in this game we played, and you're like going, okay. And that's why that sort of died. But I think it can make a reoccurrence with just very minimal controls. And that's what Wizards does. They keep minimal controls on the game, and it makes it work. Yeah. Well, I think I know some games, too, have a problem of level disparity. Not all RPGs are 1 to 20, so you don't get this situation where one character comes in and they just like you said i have a 15th level and the other three people have third levels and now you're trying to figure out how am i gonna i want them to adventure together i never want to say hey we can't play because you guys don't have the right level character you don't have the right like if they're willing to come to my table and sit down i want to be able to play the game no matter what happens so i think that's one of the things that living campaign helps to to fix so you're yes. not worrying about time constraints and, and letting people come in and out and allowing the party to change more dynamically than it does now. I think we really get set into this. We have our five players and it's only our five players. And now when somebody asks about, hey, can I play a game? He's like, well, I've really got my five kind of group. That's about what I can right, do. Right. And but then, then they're out the door and then, yeah. yeah, then they maybe don't play. They moved on to something else and you've missed out. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of diversity. All, almost all my good friends that I've got acquired in the last 40 years I would say 95% of them came out of gaming. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't game, I sucked them into gaming. <laughs> you know, so, and you end up becoming personal friends with these people. And I have a large cadre and I play a lot of different types of games. Mm-hmm. The like disparities in, in levels, I think people, like I said, I'm, I'm getting into milestone leveling, which I'll likely for sure use because at the end of an adventure, you just give them that was half a level or that was a full level or, you know, whatever amount is so that, if they go to someone else and play who's in your living game, they know how many living adventures are out there. So they can pretty much know how high maximum a character can pretty much be within a give or take. But people are weird about that disparity. We used to that a lot in old D&D. I mean, it was not uncommon to have a ninth level character running with a fourth level character. You know, I mean, the fourth level character was sort of sucked on because he knew he was getting a whole lot of experience at the end and likely some nice magical items the high level characters weren't going to need them so they were like yeah yeah you can have this plus two sword so it was a way for them to build their characters up and keep their risks down 
because you know you're not carrying the weight you know if you're a fourth level fighter the ninth level fighter is likely carrying most of the weight you're just there to make sure that his back is covered <laughs> um and that worked i mean we didn't have a problem with that i mean we would have characters running in all different levels you know and and that would work a lot but now people are like well uh, he's a level higher or whatever so i mean i don't know whether i can even run in that game and, and that i think is a mistake but yeah yeah it's and a it common common wisdom where everybody wants to stay the same level we had a guy miss one of our last games he was a level lower than the group and at the end of the adventure they said well let's just brevet him up to our level is that okay and i'm like well i'm not gonna argue i mean this is what they want i'm willing to you know obviously include it but i find no problem in running you know game disparity level disparity you can cheat it as the dm and matt's talked about this where you know the monsters don't really pay as much attention to the lower level fighters as they do to the high level because they realize this guy's really not a risk so the big monster doesn't go over there and kill the second level dude he goes and fights the you know the eighth the level threat. fighter you know yeah. and that you know the, maybe if you stumble in and hit the second one of the monsters it might give you a back slap but for the most part you, you give them a slap and that and that works i mean you know a, a a tail slap from a dragon is likely going to be sufficient to knock out a second level character. So <laughs> that's all you have to do. You don't need to concentrate on them and try to kill them. And my reputation as a killer DM is, is unfair. I mean, I'm a drama DM, you know, but the, the point is I'm always rooting for the characters, but you don't <laughs> want to be the DM who the characters think you're out to get them because yeah. as the DM, quite frankly, I can boulet them at any time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it too a little bit of it it's funny because I believe up until like probably D&D 3rd edition and all the games that came before that those were games that were based on the games that came before them that were role playing games and they were iterations of that but we finally get into like 4th edition and 5th edition and that time frame is when computer games begin to influence how RPGs are being made versus before that it was RPGs maybe influencing how computer games were made and yeah, I, know, I completely agree with that yeah. a lot of people will say they think 4th edition is more like playing World of Warcraft than playing Dungeons and Dragons which I think was one of its big knocks mm -hmm. and one of the things that people didn't like um you know, I, I, I've heard various different complaints. I have a friend who says that a lot of these modern games are the death of imagination because they do everything for you. There's just, it's a pre-formed route that you can follow, that you don't get to make it all up. You know, when we played the fantasy trip, there was no two characters that were the same, ever, because there was no, there was no format. There wasn't a bard's, you know, format, a fighter. You know, it just depended on what skills you took and how you put them together. Yeah. They're trying to do that with 5th edition a lot more because if the, you saw the some of the newer modules are coming out with more different types of bards or more different types of different things. So it's a problem. I mean, you know, understand these people need to pay a mortgage. So they're trying to get you to buy stuff and utilize their product mm -hmm. and get you excited with their game and get you playing. And they're being very successful. But don't lose the track of making it your game. And if you want it to be a certain way, you know, play that. I mean... My group in Pasadena, we never play Dungeons and Dragons. We always are playing, you know, Dragon Quest or Fantasy Trip. And these are highly modified versions of those games. Mm -hmm. But we've made them our game to suit what we like. Yeah. Um, DMs should always do that. It used to be in the DMG that the Dungeon Master could do anything he wanted. You know, however you want to change this game to suit what you do in your game system, please do it. That's what the game is made for. These rules really are kind of just format. They're just kind of a, you know uh, an outline of how things could be, but people start to take it as canon, and then it's like, well, 
that's not the official way the rule works. And then mm -hmm. you get into rules lawyering and all that. And a lot of times the storytelling goes away. What you end up with is just, you know, I know this game better than you know this game. So, mm -hmm. you know, then it, then it deteriorates. And nothing worse than peeing the, pissing off the DM because they're like, okay, fine. You're going to be that way. I don't need to run a game for you. I mean, right. I've got plenty of other places I could be. So, yeah. yeah, and I think that that's that holdover too. We get that a little bit of attitude of everybody needs to be the same level or you have your group. Like online, when you play those games, you get into your groups, you get into your friends and you, and you don't maybe diversify as much. And the hobby is about meeting all kinds of people and playing with all kinds of people. That's how it started. It was... Uh, you know, like you said, it was a house full of three games being run at one time of all kinds yeah. of people versus just a six player group that meets everyone. Not that that's a wrong way to play, but getting back to a little bit to that route. I think we're we're moving back there. I think during the late 90s, 2000s, we were getting really insular again a little bit just with our. But now I think that diversity is popping back out again and a lot of people are getting back in. We're making our games accessible and everybody. And I think the living games helped a lot in that. And the fact yeah. that they were always at cons. I mean, I tell people if, if you don't have anything going on, go to a game convention. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is a great place to meet other players. And, you know, people are like, well, what do I do? And I said, you walk you look at a game that you like and you walk up and say, can I play? And they're going to go, well, Hammond Hahn. I said, well, if you can't, if I can't play here, where can I go play? Mm -hmm. And eventually I said, oh, you know, sit down. Come on, we'll teach you how to play. <laughs> and now you're in the game. And thusly, some of them can find out, hey, these guys are cool. These guys are nice. I like them. Um, mm -hmm. Here, let me just exchange phone numbers or emails or whatever. And, and we don't live so far apart. That's how I got it. This hot's how it all started. I mean, I just went places, met people, and, you know, played them. And then after a while, I had phone numbers. So on a Friday night, I just start calling people. You know, when I got 10, I said, okay, we've got a game and who knows how many showed up, you know, we'd get <laughs> six to 12 people and show up to play and it was game on and that's yeah. how it went. And it was always fun. And I like that. I mean, it shouldn't be six people hiding in a closet because they're afraid their people are going to find out they're geeky D and Ders. Right. I mean, I had an advantage that I had a really hot looking girlfriend. So any place I went with D&D, &D, nobody was going to think I was a nerd because I'm running my D&D &D and she's got her wizard next to me playing. Everyone's like, okay, this is cool. You know? so, that's good. So I, I like seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I, I, I went to my first, um, when I decided to be a GM was only two years ago. And I decided, I just went to Gen Con. I had never been to any of the game cons ever. I just sat down. And I said, you know, what? I'm just going to go to Gen Con. I'm going to play games. I'm going to meet people. And that's how I'm going to find a way to get into groups and stuff. And I'm yeah. never looking back. I'm going this year. We're setting up our trip. We got people going with us. We're hosting games. I'm running games for like Monty Cook games because I'm doing yeah. a bunch of Numenera stuff, which I love. And I'm doing stuff for Magpie games, uh, Dungeon World, and a lot of those Powered by the Apocalypse There's so much RPGs. good content out there now. It's, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So right now, like we've talked a little bit about the past and, and I know Matt's video goes a lot into the past and we've talked a little bit about the present, but where do you feel like the hobby's at right now? Like your overall general feeling of how the game hobby, the, the tabletop RPG is right now. How do you feel about where it's at? I I have a lot of, of positive feeling about it because obviously my, my recent interaction, obviously on the social media and going back and forth, has been super positive. People are really, really receptive. Um, I, I kind of think they think of me as Obi-Wan Kenobi, you know, where I'm the kind of the old Jedi from the gaming world. And in many ways, that's true. But I, I'm going to cost, there's so much you can do. There's so many games, so whatever your genre like, whatever you want to play, it's there. 
it's up to you just to grab onto it and start playing it. And role playing is nice. I think Matt and uh, Matt Mercer um, and a lot of these people have changed the format of gaming and made it more accessible to a whole different group of gamers. Many more women playing now than were ever playing back in the day. And I had a, a mixed group that was 50-50 when I was playing in the 70s, but we were unusual. Hmm. But I love to go now, and I, I found, I think there's a group on Critical Role, which is almost all women are playing. Hmm. And I like that. It's a great diversity in gaming, which we didn't have. And the more diversity in gaming with the more different types of people playing makes the game better. And thusly, with people being able to go online and directly interact with the content producer, like they directly interact with Matt, and he produces, you know, what do you want to see? I want to see this kind of streaming. Then it's like, okay, great, we're going to show you that. And then teach you how to play. I mean, I told Matt from the very beginning, the best thing he was doing was not trying to be a celebrity, but trying to make it accessible to everybody else who wanted to play. Because that's what I try to do. I try to say, look, you know, people say, I wish I could paint miniatures like you do. And I said, mm -hmm. look, I'm not a good painter. I have a golden demon, <laughs> but I'm a mediocre painter at best. But I'm fast and I can do a nice job quickly. And I can give you 70% of my skill just by watching me paint, you know, doing a little bit of stuff or let me sit down and paint with you for a little while. And from then on, you decide how good you want to be. And again, with the miniatures, you have the pre-painted now that are available. And <laughs> those you can just touch up in a couple minutes and make them look beautiful. There's so much more out there than I ever had access to. And I'm excited by it. And then you go online, find a game format you like. You know, you're playing, you know, if you just want to play, you know, roll D20, it's there. You can be gaming tomorrow today mm -hmm. you know if you want to just go online and look for a group <laughs> at the end of this show we're <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's fabulous i mean there literally is less time to play than there are uh, options to play with i mean it yeah. in the old days i had to fight hard to get a game together now I could more likely play Dungeons and Dragons 24-7 if I wanted to, you know, type yeah. of thing. So and still just... be wanting to play other games. Like, I'm having the problem now that I'm running so many D&D &D games, but I have other games I want to play. I want, I want to run I Numenera. I want to run The Strange. I want to run all these other ones. I don't have time anymore because they're a four-hour game. It's, it's astounding. <laughs> it, it really is. It's hard. You know, it's, it's like the whole thing. I'm trying to figure out a way to monetize this to a point where I can just provide game content all and play. Time. Yeah. You know, and just a nonstop, you know, because... <laughs> As you get closer to the end of the tunnel, you know, you obviously become aware that the, the most valuable commodity is time. And mm -hmm. I tell people, do it now. You know, especially when people were, I have a friend of mine who were in the game industry. And when I had my shop, they were obviously children. They would say, well, I really want to be in the game industry. And I said, well, go for it. Always go for it. Whatever it is you want to do, try it now. You can always fall back and do something mundane or boring. But if you stay on the path and do what you want to do, no matter what it is, even if you fail, you're going to fail at a level that's more than likely successful. You may not get to where you want to be, but you're going to get to a level that you didn't even dream about until, when you started. And that applies to everything. you know. And, and to me, I've always loved gaming, so I just stayed with it, and I just stayed with it, and I just outlived everybody. You know, It was just a, a situation that there's just so much out there. And I've met so many people over the years, and, and I've had such a nice, immersive you know, feel in the game that – just go for it, you know, and don't limit yourself to, oh, I want to be a computer gamer. I mean, the funny thing about it is Matt's last two jobs have been for computer game companies, mm -hmm. maybe the last three. Mm -hmm. Matt's a board gamer. He's a tabletop and role-playing miniature gamer, but he ends up as a writer for a computer game company because they're the ones who can write him a paycheck. Yeah. But he sucks them in 
<laughs> and it gets them all playing board games and miniature games. And thusly, all those people at Turtle Rock are helping him get his dream of, you know, of, of tabletop and board game and role playing games alive. And, and that's what he really loves. I mean, he likes computer games. So do I. But that's not our first passion, you know. Yeah, yeah. You can date the other girl, but your first girlfriend's always <laughs> your best. So. Yeah, that's what I feel like right now. We're in that time of diversity is getting better and better. The number of quality games that are out there that you can find to play is increasing. Like there was a time in the 80s when it really buffed. There was a lot of RPGs coming out, but it didn't necessarily mean it was a lot of good RPGs coming out. There were, you know, there was lots of things being tried out or different and everybody trying to make their mark over D&D and didn't quite make it. But nowadays you can find some really quality stuff happening now. You get lots of players. You can play with somebody that's in Australia. You can play with somebody that's in the UK. You can get buddies together that you were military friends with or you went to college together and now you can get back together. I mean, this time is this weird renaissance. I like to think of it as gaming has come back. And computers, I think in the 80s and 90s, tried to fill that hole or that void a little bit that some of us had, where if we couldn't find a group or nobody's schedules ever worked, what were you going to do? Well, I still want a game. World of Warcraft, baby. So uh, yeah, (laughs) it's as close as I'm going to get. I'm going to dive into it. I like it. I can level my character up. I get new abilities. It's cool. But it's also like, tabletop caught back up again like they they finally threw off their shackles of we're only going to be tabletop or we're only we're only this let's start appealing back to that crowd and bring back those gamers because there's millions of gamers in a lot of ways i think it's the younger people who did it the people who love the hobby and didn't want to see it go away and what you had is you had a lot of the more curmudgeon-y type and we run in that in historical gaming a lot with the hmgs thing there's still some curmudgeons out there that say well if it's not historical and it's not a miniature game you know it shouldn't be here and you're yeah. like going so you want to be the scotch tape store you want the business to go away <laughs> look everything leads into something else if i teach you to play bolt action world war ii and you like oh, it and you it. play it and thusly you're caught in and then maybe for hey that napoleonic game with 2000 figures looks bitching i'm overplaying with dana hone and his 2000 points you know his 2000 you know english civil war game mm-hmm. you get sucked in or maybe it's just Frostgrave, or maybe it's you know something else there's so many good things osprey produces all these little mini books on all kinds of very cool games that you can play and it broadens your spectrum and like Frostgrave. Uh, we were mad my friend Don and I were saying this makes a great driver for a role-playing campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what Albion was. I used a board game that I love the, the color in the board game, and I adopted a whole role-playing campaign that plays now for over a decade, almost two decades, using that color. Now, not the game, but all the color that was generated from that game. There's so much of that out there. And that's what I tell people to do. Grab something you like, a book. Or a board game, or a, like I say, grab Frostgrave and look at that, read it, and then suddenly go, wow, I'm going to run a campaign based on this format. And yeah. boom, you're off. And then just pick your game system. I recommend you play a game system that everybody else plays. You know, I tend often not to do that, but I have that option because I have lots of you know, a good player base. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I like the idea too. I used to play Armadi, and we played Dawn Patrol. We played all those BattleTech back in the day. Oh god, we loved all those miniature games. Love them. <laughs> Good stuff. So we talked about a little bit of the past. We talked about uh, the present, definitely. Um, and we're already getting close. When you asked me, I, we were on just before the show went live, and he's like, "How th- how long do you think we'll go?" And I'm like, "Ah, you know, thirty minutes, forty five minutes." But then an hour goes by, like, and it just feels like in a minute or two. I'd love to finish off with where do you what do you think using your crystal ball, Jim Murphy, the future? 
What's what's coming up that has you super excited? Is there something you've heard about game-wise? Or there's something, like you said, you want to talk a little bit more about your living campaign? Or where do you think the hobby's going in the future now? Let's look ahead of where we are a little bit and say, what do you think's what what's interesting that we should keep in mind and, and keep an eye out for? The only thing I keep waiting for, and I've discussed mm-hmm. it for quite a while, and I start to see it coming. Um, sooner or later, someone like Blizzard or any of these companies, or maybe it's just going to be some young guys who figure out how to do it, are going to produce a very high-powered, high-tech, fantasy ground, roll D20 type game. These things are getting better. Once it gets to the point where you can run your game, where you're doing what you're doing in New York. You're in New York, right? I'm in Michigan. I'm in Michigan. Michigan, I'm sorry. Yeah. I think you were on the East Coast somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you're there. I'm here. We can get together and play our game, and it will be beautiful like some of these other games. Some of these you know, fantasy games are where you've got everything spread out before you mm-hmm. there's been some people who've tried and i've seen some dabbling but this is where i think the real future of this hobby will be the reason you haven't seen it my feeling is it just doesn't have the numbers at this point you know the game companies they look at they run a hack and slash or a first person shooter they can get how many millions of players yeah. they look back at role playing go yeah so what half a million a million who cares that's nothing you know so once they realize that that can be figure out how to monetize that where you can like uh uh you know you can make skins for your characters that look like your characters and then then and the detail work will be beautiful and the creatures will all work so it makes it so i can input my campaign and then it runs for me and i might even be able to participate this is where i think the future eventually will be. and i've seen it coming because i've talked about it like I said for as long as computers have been around that this is going to happen mm-hmm. the only reason it hasn't is nobody looks at it as a money maker and the other thing is the technology, you know, isn't quite, I think it is there actually. It's just that nobody wants to put it to play. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I'd love to get, I keep saying I'm trying to weasel a job into Blizzard because I, I want to get the ear of them to try to get them to do things I want to do and see <laughs> if they'll do it. But as my friend just says, it works there. It's like, yeah, but they don't get out of bed for less than, you know, $20 million. So it's kind of <laughs> like, it's hard to change, you know, a thematic. You have to get people like Matt Coville, Matt Mercer, um, I, I, I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Joe Mangiano. He's an actor. He yeah. was on True Blood. Yep. His wife is a famous actress, and he loves Dungeons and Dragons. And I mm-hmm. and I and he was out showing his wine cellar, which he turned into his dungeon room. That's you got to make it cool. You can't have people hiding in the shadows. When they mm-hmm. realize that this is fun, it's super. It's super beneficial. I mean, I beat my dyslexia because of games. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it'll change. When mothers realize, oh, this isn't some evil demonic. Thing. This is my son learning morality and learning, you know, how the world works and how politics works and not becoming a dupe of, you know, something else that it will become bigger and better. And I think that'll eventually all be in the, in the, in the internet at some point, like I said, it's just when somebody goes, Hey, I've got a driver, I've got an engine, I've got a plan and it comes out there. And because of the work that we're setting up now, the work that Matt's doing, it'll be more receptive because Matt and Matt Mercer, they, as you said, we've had a 50% increase this year from last year or last year yeah. from the year before. Yeah. You see a couple more years like that. And I think you're going to, um, it won't be long till somebody goes, Hey, let's, let's do this. And you know, the first ones will be like EverQuest. They'll be rough, you know, and there'll be a little, you know, or Ultima online where they're not going to be quite great. But then it'll be Diablo, and from Diablo become WoW, and then obviously you can pick the myriads of MMO type things that exist. But they'll have that that true role playing experience. Love WoW, not a role playing game. 
you know, love all these games, still not role playing. But mm-hmm. once that comes where I can park my adventure into this system and you can play it and a thousand other people can play it. A, one thing it allows someone to monetize it so people can do that and allows companies to make money. That's where I think the future will be. Um, I hope yeah. to live long enough to see it. Um, I'd love to even participate in it, but I think I'm the stepping stone. And I think Matt Coville and everyone, we're pushing that envelope forward. And you are too. The yeah. more all this gets out there, the more people who listen, the more people who get excited about it, go to a con, get involved. And you might have some tech who's now working at a new game company. And he says, hey, wait a minute, we could do that. And, and you know, like I said, you'll suddenly see something pop up. That's what I'm dreaming of. And I think I think it'll seriously get there. And maybe my days of, of painting miniatures will end and they'll all just be in a museum somewhere. Uh, no, no, you'll so. be painting them in the computer game. You'll be in the computer game and you'll be painting them there. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Like I said, I'll be, I'll be glad to have a nice game center and museum that I can retire away to and just run games daily with people who come in to see the old codger, so... Yeah, I think with technology is definitely going to help with the tabletop games. Like they already have like the Microsoft table so that when you look at the table, it shows a 3D representation of something going on the table. So like uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, um, and these type of games can help with tabletop games or board games that are going to do that. I've seen um, Hairbrain Schemes had one where they had a light pin that they'd sold in the box and you use the pin and touch the base of the the miniature you were moving around. And then on your tablet, it was doing all the fighting and calculating of hit points right. and stuff. And I was like, right. so it's already little pieces of technology Absolutely. coming in to, to buff it up. So I think we're, we're in this cool zone of innovation coming, but real storytelling. Everything's real strong storytelling right now too, which I think is important. It's not so much about just mechanics. And I have this cool mechanic. It's about, I have this cool story and I might have come up with some cool mechanics to drive the story that I'm looking at. So right. we're... Well, the mechanics are easy. Mechanic is just the way the gravity works in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just a matter of you picking the one you want. And that's all, I mean, game systems are. The, the real, real value in any sort of, you know, RPG game is the story and the drama and the content and that feeling you get at the end. And that's the thing you don't always get in games is that when you finish up an adventure, especially I, when I, what I love, is when everybody wants to run out afterwards and sit down and have pie and coffee and talk about the adventure for hours. That's when you know you had a super successful game. Or, like I said, I ran a game. Nobody could get to it after the second. I ran the second game. They were like, can we play next week? I mean, they're like, we're ready to play tomorrow type of thing. <laughs> That's what you want. You want that level of, God, that was so good. And that is where RPGs step over everything else. doesn't matter how beautiful it is if the story is kind of like, yeah, okay. But if it's great. Blizzard was the first that kind of made it sort of feel like an, an RPG, yeah. you know, and that and that helped. Um, and as more we get into that, I think you'll start seeing more and more of that pop up. And I think there'll be a whole niche genre. And I don't think the gaming world really realizes how Matt may open them up. I don't think people expect it. There's been a lot of board games that have suddenly come out that have gone well over a million dollars. Once companies start to see that, wait a second, are you kidding me? Matt put out a thing that he's promising to stream and produce a nice little book, give some t-shirts, some really cool stuff, and he gets X amount of dollars? Well, we can do better or bigger or whatever. Mm-hmm. We'll do something with our stuff, and we'll see where it goes. And then you're not worried about, well, we only have a four-year lifespan, and then the game becomes you know, obsolete mm-hmm. or 10 years or whatever the, the game is. You're going to be sitting, when you get a format set up, it'll go on you know, indefinitely. Because people want to keep playing role-playing games. I'm living proof. 
You know, I can dig up stories from well over 40 years ago and tell you about characters and how they heroically died or won or whatever. And that's still the mainstay. And my friends who were there still talk about that like it was real. <laughs> like it, and, it, and we've had storied lives. I've done all kinds of wonderful things. And it, still the most important thing that happened was in the role-playing game. So <laughs> what does that tell you? Yeah, you know, yeah. It tells you that this is going to be a format that's never going away. And as long as people look to support it, it's going to just get getting better. Yeah. All right. So I was thinking maybe we'll end off with some rapid fire little questions that are just things about Jim. Fire I think like these are like, so right now, Dungeons and Dragons, what's your favorite class to play? Bard. Bard. Love it. What is your favorite historics game to play? Uh, currently bolt action. Bolt action. I love bolt action. That's a really good I one. do too. It, it's fun and fast, and big miniatures make it look bitching. So. Yeah. Right now, what's your favorite miniature you've painted so far? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I knew I'd get you the on one of them. Favorite miniature I painted? <laughs> I had a character I painted years ago called Liam of Keys, and it's kind of a cute story. And it was my favorite pick. I had really stepped above my level. Well, one of my other friends, Don's a painter. When he got together, he kind of copied it, found the miniature quickly du duplicated it so it looked sort of like mine and then we were sitting there and we were playing and i turned around and he had swapped miniatures off and he goes oh my god jimmy got hit by a trap and he picked up a hammer and he smashed the miniature <laughs> <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> so that was more likely the funniest story how it miniatures it was one of my favorite miniatures up till then i'm always painting i i usually don't have particularly a favorite though i do have some sue that i paid for for Tecamel that look really slick and I really like those, but nobody right. but me is going to appreciate it. Love it. What is your favorite right now fantasy RPG that you love to play? That I'd like to play? Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you a cop-out answer. And then I, can, I mean, I like whatever anybody will play. Mm -hmm. I would have to say that my fall two has always been the fantasy trip, but it's been dead for so long that we're playing a highly modified version. Mm -hmm. And as I said, I sent a letter out to Steve Jackson saying, you really need to hire me and bring me on board because I doubt anyone knows this game anywhere near as well as I do. But, you know, people are always reluctant to have somebody else come in with their own opinion. So yeah. I don't hold my breath on that. But I would love to do it. But it's yeah. a great game because it's so very simple, yet you can vary and really make your characters as diverse. I mean, like I said, we play... And it's possible to never see the same type of character. And, you know, when he had to change it over to, to GURPS, I thought it lost a lot in the, in the, in the changeover. But that's because he had to change it to not get sued. But, mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, I would say that would be the, the two things. But 5th edition's not bad. I'd still rather see 4th edition, but nobody cares about that but, but me and Matt and a handful of other people. So. <laughs> well, it's nice that you can still play those. It's not like those go away and you can't play them these days. You can still just I know, but you know right what? you got to keep step with everything else or you become the commission who, yeah. who's there and says, get off my lawn, you know, type <laughs> of thing. So. Awesome. All right, and, and then to round that one off, what is your favorite science fiction role-playing game? to play traveler traveler nice. i would love to play i'm trying to get a group together to play the expanse i don't know if anybody watches yeah, sci-fi yeah and sees the expanse the expanse is the traveler campaign i mean the guy who must have made it that and i thought that firefly or um you know uh was was a was a traveler these guys have had to have read traveler yeah. It was more fun to generate the characters almost than play the game, but I love Traveler as a sci-fi <laughs> game. There are other games out there that might be better, but 
Traveler was fun, but I'd love to run an expanse. That's game the one that captures of, you. Of, nice. Fire, of, of Traveler. All right, let's finish it off with a couple of GM questions. What's your favorite creature to put against your players? What level? Mid level. That kind of anywhere from that five to ten ish. Um, more than likely anything in the elven realm, uh, drow or uh, oh, or elves. Nice. I like humanoid characters combination type situations, but I run very big one. I mean, I was going to give you my pad answer. My favorite monster is the Sturgy. But, oh. uh, and, but it falls apart a little bit at fifth level. At fifth level, <laughs> geez, I'd have to throw 40 of you. Not that I don't already have 40 Sturgies, because <laughs> I do, but um, um, that's my favorite creature. I love things that um, look simple and look easy, but turn into very challenging encounters. I, I made a quote one time, and Matt liked it. It was like, you know, beat a, beat a party with a beholder, big deal. Beat a party with a pack of goblins it's an epic and that's it i've, I've always run I, I try to run under power level and beat the players with a little sophistication as opposed to trying to make them you know anybody can throw a dragon in a party you know yeah, yeah. and then it's like well maybe they make it maybe they don't but it's much different when you're doing shambling mounds and all the interesting creatures yeah you named my favorite is, one. is uh yeah we're, we're really close yeah yeah displacer beast i just love the displacer beast and you said oh. you, you sent two of them at him i was like yes yeah. that's my favorite they're they're, they're they're very good <laughs> they're very good i love them i love the look well, they're very interesting because they change the anything that changes the game mechanic is a fun monster you know mm -hmm. where and displacer keys you know everybody's fighting with a disadvantage if they can't hit it the minute they hit it it breaks mm -hmm. if you throw a spell at it you know if it makes it save it takes no damage even if it's a half damage spell it's a good creature yeah. You know, and it's not so high level. It's a good creature for mid-level. Yeah, super fun. Well, you have been an awesome sport answering all my questions. You've given us some great stories. I hope everybody goes from here. This will be up on YouTube if you happen to miss it, for those of you that are in the Twitch chat. I put uh, Jim's link to his YouTube uh, channel in the chat there so you guys can go over. He's got several videos up. He's just getting started in YouTube, but he's putting up stuff already that's really good really helpful for people. He answers comments all the time too, or you can get a hold of him at, at game Methuselah. And I think there's an underscore in there. We'll put that in his Twitter because he's very active with his community that he's starting to grow. He's starting to grow his community, just like I'm growing my community and Matt grew his community and we're, we're very interactive. So this is a good time if you want to talk with us or ask questions or just share stories with us. Um, and we're about Absolutely. encouraging new GMs, especially if you're going to run games and you need some help or you just need some advice or whatever, send it to us because we want to help you get started and into this hobby that we love so much. Um, Jim, you have the floor. This Anything else that you would like to say as we head out? I don't want to make any shameless plugs. I'm just going to sign off <laughs> my usual moniker. So yeah. anyway, out there, fight me devil's fight for I hate peace. Everybody game on. And if you need to get in touch with me, find me on Twitter or YouTube. Glad to talk to you about gaming. Hope to see you at a game convention. And thank you very much for having me on your show. I really appreciate getting out there and talking about gaming. It's the most yeah. fun I have with my clothes on. Thanks. <laughs> All right, guys. So we're going to close it out here pretty quick. Remember to be back uh, next Saturday and we'll have the show run again. Jordan will be back. We'll be bringing on more guests. There's lots going on. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you in the next Saturday morning D&D show. Thank you. Bye. Thanks again, guys. Have a good day. Our intro and outro music is 8-Bit March by Twin Musicom, licensed under Creative Commons. Check out their website at www.twinmusicom.org.